Today's scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not yet <coughs> not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives true gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service. Would you not bow your heads with me as we ask the Lord to bless our time? Father, we come before you with heavy hearts. Father, with things going on in our own individual, personal lives, in the lives of our family, and also in what is happening across the globe. Father, we are very well aware that our brothers and sisters over in Russia and in the Ukraine are filled with such frustration and fear. And as their brothers and sisters in Christ, we feel that burden with them. And Father, yet we understand that even with all that is going on over there, we realize that still we must do the task that you have given to us. Children must be fed, bills must be paid, school must be done, work must be attended to. And yet, Father, we pray that you will be with the church universal, that you will be with the saints uh, in that part of the world as we now do our part of giving you the rightful praise as we do what we must on this Lord's Day, which is giving proper worship to you. We pray that with all the things that can weigh us down and distract us, you will now hush these things and therefore give us the attentive mind and heart to receive all that you want us to receive in today's word. And so, Lord, we pray now that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So I'm sure you've heard by now that Tom Brady recently retired from football, considered arguably the greatest quarterback football player of all time. 
And for the past few weeks, my social media has been saturated with sports commentators, uh, uh, former athletes, even famous Hollywood celebrities sharing their own personal, memorable, and impactful moments that they had with the GOAT of the NFL, as he sometimes referred to. In fact, as I was scrolling through the various news feeds, I was triggered and reminded of the personal moment where I was impacted by Tom Brady in the one and only time that he did. All right. And it wasn't something that he did on the football field, but rather it was words that he said in an interview room. The setting is 2005, Sunday night, I'm in my living room, couch watching CBS's 60 Minutes, where they're interviewing a very young Tom Brady, who at that point only had five seasons under his illustrious 22-season career. Okay? It was at that point in his life, in such a short amount of time, that he achieved so much. He was at the top of his game. In fact, I would imagine that if he ended up dying back in 05, he would have died a happy man because according to his own words, he achieved all that he ever wanted to achieve in his entire life. And yet, shockingly, at some point in the interview, he said these startling words to the reporter who was interviewing him. He said this, quote, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel there's something greater out there for me? Many people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dreams, my life is. Me? I'm thinking, God, there's got to be more than this. And when the reporter interviewing asked him what that more could be, his response, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady discovered at a very young age what most people don't discover until they're very old when they can't do anything about it. And what discovery am I talking about? It's the heart-wrenching discovery that no matter what you achieve in life, no matter what you've acquired in life, no matter what you've experienced in life, you come to the startling realization that you are not satisfied with your life. You are haunted with this sense that something vitally crucial is missing in your life, something that you cannot afford to miss out on. And yet, the frustrating thing is, you don't know what it is. Why is it that this phenomenon that I'm speaking of is such a recurring issue for so many, if not all of us? Hmm? Well, that is the question that we hope to answer as we begin a new sermon series today entitled The I Am Sayings of Jesus. For the next seven weeks, we're going to look at specific statements that Jesus said recorded for us in the Gospel of John that all begin with the statement, I am. And today we kick off this series by looking at the very first I am statement that Jesus ever uttered, and that is the one that goes like this, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And as we consider what Jesus is saying, we come to discover that Jesus is going to provide us the only answer to the one that Tom Brady could not answer in 05 and most likely has still not answered today along with so many people around him. So with that stage set, three things I'd like to share with you. And they all center on how you understand Jesus as well as how you understand yourself. And those three things are, first, misunderstanding Jesus. Then we're going to talk about misunderstanding ourselves. And then we're going to end it with understanding Jesus. The only way we can overcome the dilemma that so many struggle with deals with making sure that we have a proper understanding and not a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and who we are. So with that in mind, first point that we're going to look at, misunderstanding Jesus. Uh, our passage begins with a crowd looking for Jesus Christ. And there are two things that I want to draw your attention to about this crowd. First thing, it's massive. It's huge. If you look at verse 10, it actually enumerates how many people were looking for Jesus. How many? 
5,000. That's a lot of people. This is a huge, massive crowd looking to find Jesus. The second thing I want to draw your attention is to the fact that this crowd on the surface seems to have a high regard, high respect for Jesus Christ, evident by how they address him once they find him in verse 25. How do they call him? Rabbi. Rabbi. Now, for you and me, that may not sound pretty impressive, but back in the days of the New Testament, that was very impressive for someone to be identified as a rabbi because this was not a a generic term that you would give to a random stranger to show respect like sir or ma'am. No, for a person to be called rabbi meant that they were part of an exclusive elite few who was able to attain such a religious stature in the days of the ancient world. So here you have a massive crowd who seem to have a high veneration, high respect for Jesus. And not only that, if you look at their behavior in verses 22 and 24, what are they doing? They seem to be going out of their way, really inconveniencing themselves to try and get to Jesus. What are they doing? They're getting on boats to cross a sea on the off chance that maybe he's in a town called Capernaum. This is a group of people who seem on the outside very devoted, very dedicated in getting to Jesus and to follow him. And so you would imagine that Jesus would see the behavior of this crowd and be highly pleased with them and really enjoy what they're doing to where he would just be so happy. After all, throughout the Gospels, he's always telling people, if you want to follow me, you got to really inconvenience yourself. You got to take up that cross. You got to be willing to forsake others like your comfort and the people around you. And so you would imagine, yes, come to me. So happy to have you. And yet that is not his response. Notice how he addresses this crowd once they finally get to him. Starting in verse 26, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what in the world is he talking about? What are these loaves that Jesus is referring to? Well, let me give you a little helpful background. Just a few moments before, earlier on in this chapter, Jesus did something miraculous. He did something amazingly supernatural. He took five small loaves of bread, two tiny fish, and miraculously multiplied it and fed every single person of this 5,000 crowd. And he fed them to the full. Like they had so much food that they couldn't eat all the food that Jesus miraculously produced for them. Now, when you understand that's the background, then you understand what he's saying to the crowd in verse 26. Essentially, he's saying to these guys, look, you're following me not because I did something supernatural, but because I simply filled your bellies. You are seeking after me not because I did something that only God can do, wink, wink, but because you're pursuing me like a customer would pursue a waiter wanting to get their needs and desires met because, after all, customer is king, right? See, the point Jesus is trying to make to this crowd is that even though they're following him, they're not really following him at all. In other words, it is possible, says Jesus, to give the appearance that you are seeking him, to give the appearance that you love him, give the appearance that you're devoted to him and you're following him, when in fact you're not doing any of the kind. You are misfollowing Jesus. You're following him for the wrong reasons. And friends, this is stuff that goes on even now to this day. Why is it that there are atheists out there who will religiously, no pun intended, read the New Testament, study the teachings of Jesus? It isn't because they believe in Jesus, but because they respect him. They admire his ethics. They look into his philosophy and get inspired, but they certainly don't worship it, but instead they just want to learn from him. Why is it that there are certain parents who personally would never step foot in a church, but they would drag and drop off their kids at every Sunday school, at every retreat, at every Bible study, at every Sunday service? 
because they want their children to be exposed to a positive environment. Why is it that there are politicians who Monday through Saturday do not act Christian, but on every Lord's Day is there religiously among their constituents speaking words of convictions, words of faith? And of course, why is it there are those who would normally not consider Jesus, but now talks nothing about Jesus because they're trying to convince a certain lady, a certain guy, I'm into Jesus like you. We can go out on that dinner. We can go out on that date. We can get engaged. We can get married. All too often in our society throughout the ages, there have been many people who claim to say, I follow Jesus, when in fact they don't follow him at all. And the reason is because they don't understand how important Jesus really is, which is another way of saying they misunderstand Jesus. And it's through their misunderstanding that they miss follow him and so that begs the question why do people like this even exist why are there people out there who believe they're following christ when in reality they're not following him at all what is the source of this misunderstanding of him well jesus surprisingly would say it's because they don't understand themselves and to explain i go to my next point misunderstanding ourselves go down to verse 27 where Jesus says these words, Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus tells the crowd that when it comes to the kinds of food they are hungry for, they should not hunger after food that perishes, but food that does not perish. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, let me just clear something up. There is a growing misconception out there that says that we Christians take the entire Bible literally every single time. And I'm telling you right now, that is simply not true. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certainly some parts of the Bible, many of them that we do take literally every single time we come across them. So, for example, whenever we do read the Bible telling us, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes, we take those words literally. But we Christians also understand that there are many parts of the Bible that are highly symbolic, that are metaphorical, that use figurative languages to speak deeper truths. And that is what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus is speaking of food, he is not literally speaking of food at all. And so here's the question. If he's not literally speaking of food, what is he metaphorically speaking of when he refers to the food? Well, think about some of the things we typically associate food with. For example, number one, the first thing we tend to associate food with is what? Security. Specifically, securing our life. If you want to live you need to eat. You need food if you want to have security, right? You know, in certain environments, in certain places, you can actually live without shelter. You can even live without clothing, right? I wouldn't recommend going there, right? But in all places, all the time, you need to eat. Food and security go hand in hand. The second thing food is associated with is what? Pleasure. There's a famous Korean phrase, and don't laugh at me, guys, that goes like this. Ibishimshime. Did I say it okay? Which literally means, my mouth is bored. And what that phrase assumes, rightly so, is that there's a latent, pleasurable joy attached to food. This is why we always have food at graduation ceremonies, at weddings, at birthday parties, because we're trying to enhance and magnify the joyous occasion and the pleasures of those moments, right? Food and pleasure are one and the same. The third thing that food is associated with is what? Family, family. This is why we have mama's cooking, 
a home-cooked meal, the family recipe, there is some deep embedded connection that cannot be severed when it comes to food and family. And then number four, food is also associated with status, right? When you have a musician, very talented, able to use that talent to put food on the table for his kids, now his musical career has a certain status that doesn't apply to that starving artist on the street, right, in the city. When an entrepreneur is trying to make it and he's able to get grocery bills paid and feed his children from it, now that business has a certain status that that struggling entrepreneur cannot enjoy. Significance, status is always attached to the provision of food as well. Now, when you put all this together, it makes total sense why Jesus used the metaphor of food in this teaching because what better way to convey the various things that people center their lives on? Yeah. People center their lives on one, if not all, of these four things. Am I right? So many people today center their lives of just trying to have a secure life. They work jobs that they hate. They're consumed with just making money. Other people are consumed and centering on just having a good time. Life is a party. Let's not do anything hard. Let's not do anything difficult. Let's go from job to job, place to place, so long as I can stay with my friends, travel the world, and go to every restaurant that's out there under the sun. For other people, life is all about family. They're looking for that significant person that they can spend the rest of their lives with, raise children together with, and have their happily ever moment life together. And then, of course, there are people who center their lives on status and significance through their achievements, which is why people who think this way say, hey, if you want to make it, what do you have to be? Hungry right? Status and significance are the things that so many people try to consume so that they can have a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. Now, with all this said, let's now reread what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is telling us that out of the various foods that we all consume, chase after, center our lives on, It does not ultimately satisfy us. It doesn't. Why? Because they all perish. They go bad. They decay. They do not last forever. You see, Jesus is telling us that when it comes to the thing that you're truly hungering for, earthly foods, the foods of this world, will not satisfy. Because according to him, the kind of food you need to eat that will settle that hunger is something that is eternal. Think about that. By saying this, Jesus is clearly implying about how you and I are made. If we need to eat eternal food, doesn't that mean that you are by design eternal? If you were created to have food that never perishes, doesn't that imply that God created you to never perish? How other way can you make sense of his words? And yet this is where so many people don't understand themselves. They don't understand that God created us in the words of Ecclesiastes 3 with eternity in our hearts. He created us to be eternal creatures, which means he created us to have eternal hunger. But because we don't realize this, we try to satisfy this eternal hunger with earthly foods, money, marriage, career, sexuality, pleasures, status, and it ends up not satisfying us and we end up falling into severe tragedy three that i can think of off the top of my head 
for example, the first tragedy is when you struggle like Tom Brady, where at a very young age you had your fill of all the foods that you've ever wanted to eat in this world and you're still dissatisfied and you have no idea what you're hungry for. Or maybe you've lived your life up until your senior citizen years, you've eaten your fill, and you still are hungry. And the worst thing is, death is much closer to your door to where you have no time left to even figure out what you're hungry about. And then you have the worst tragedy of all, where right here, right now, many of you, you're seeking after a certain kind of morsel that you think is going to satisfy you without recognizing it's going to do nothing once you eat it. It's going to do nothing at all, but you don't even know that. Because you're still under the delusion that your eternal hunger can be satisfied with earthly foods. These are the tragedies that we see everywhere going on. Every situation that causes people to be so miserable, to be so morose, is because they misunderstand who they are because they don't understand the nature of their hunger. And therefore, they don't see the source the way they properly should. Jesus. And so the question is, how do we ensure that we don't end up like these kinds of tragic figures? Well, this leads me to my final point, understanding the true Jesus. Going down to verse 35, Jesus says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying an astounding thing here because what he's essentially saying is, guys, you need to eat me. I am your food. That's what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. When it comes to the thing that's going to settle your hungry soul, I am your sustenance. I am your source of satisfaction, which is basically his way of saying, I am the ultimate source of security. I am the ultimate source of pleasure. I am your ultimate source of home and family. I am the ultimate source of significance and status. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, you hear that, and you might think, that just sounds absurd. Really, Pastor? Jesus is the food that I really want to eat? (laughs) Not any of these other things that seem more, on the surface level, more worthwhile? Pleasure, success, family, home, right? What makes Jesus so special that makes him worthy of that kind of dedication and devotion from me? Well, I could respond by just cataloging the various ways the earthly foods of this world are so insufficient and dissatisfying like Tom Brady discovered. Maybe you've already discovered, but I'd rather not do that. Instead, I'd rather talk more about Jesus and showcase him as such a superior food. You see, because unlike the various foods we chase after in this world, Jesus is the only food who chases after us by coming into our world. You see? See, in order for Jesus to satisfy our hunger, He had to be willing to experience the complete opposite of the experience we hope to experience but never do when it comes to the earthly foods we try to eat. For example, Jesus, God, came into this world, meaning he had to leave the security of his cosmic throne. That meant he came into the world very endangered, very insecure. Why? So that he could secure for you a life that could never be insecure, eternal life, if you looked at him as Lord and Savior. Second of all, Jesus came into this world so that he could suffer the worst suffering of all as your substitute savior, paying the full penalty, the full punishment for all of your sins and my sins, the sins of the whole world. Why? So that you would be spared of such suffering and instead have the greatest pleasure of all of being in the eternal fellowship of God in his kingdom. Third of all, Jesus came into this world that resulted in him what? Being abandoned by his heavenly father as he was dying on the cross. Why? So that if you look to Jesus as your Lord, 
you would be adopted by this heavenly father where God would be your faithful father forever. And finally, Jesus, when he came into this world, suffered the worst humiliation of all, having no status, no significance. Why? So that if you look to him as your king, you instead would have status and significance that your ambition, your hunger, your achievements could never match. You see, Jesus, as the food of our souls, loves us in a way that no earthly food could ever love us. Listen, no matter how much you try to secure your earthly life, eventually your security cannot maintain its love for you because you're eventually going to die, right? All the pleasures that you look to to satisfy you eventually get boring and diminish in their returns of pleasure. Your family, who you want to hold on to with all your might, eventually are going to let you go. The kids are going to grow up. They're going to go to school. They're going to get married, and they're going to move on, and your spouse bury you or you bury them. And then status, significance through your achievement doesn't last because there's always that, that junior whippersnapper who achieves more, accomplishes more, shadowing your significance, your accomplishments. What are you left with? You're left with food that has betrayed you. Jesus is the only food that never betrays you because he was betrayed for you. Right? Jesus is the food that loves you because he was hated by the Father on your behalf. Jesus is the food that will be faithful to you because he suffered for your unfaithfulness. Jesus is the only food that can satisfy our hungry soul. And because that is true, do you know what that means? It means you, if you look to Jesus as the source of your sustenance, you're never going to be hangry, spiritually speaking. You ever been around hangry people? I have. Some of them call me daddy, <laughs> right? Hangry people are not pleasant to be around. They're not fun to be with. They're not even safe to be around. Right? Hangry people don't bless. They burden people. Hangry people don't show compassion. They're cruel. Hangry people are not generous. They're greedy. But once you give a hangry person sustenance that eases their hunger, they become the best person they can possibly be. Jesus does that for us. Many of you, I hope, have seen how ugly you can be because of how hungry you are. And I'm not talking about physical hunger. Jesus promises that if you feed on him, you will be the best person you could possibly be and therefore be a blessing to those around you. Look at the way the world is right now. Look at the conflict and the issues. When I see people fighting, seeking to conquer, seeking to dominate, I don't simply see ego out of control. I see people who are very hungry because they have not found the thing that sustains and is the source of true sustenance for them. The question is, are you going to be like that or are you going to be the best of you because of who Jesus is and only who Jesus can be for you? That is the prayer that as your pastor, that I pray for you guys every single time, what I pray for myself, what I pray for my kids. Let's become a people who have been satisfied and satiated because we're no longer hungry anymore, but are now have our fill and now ready to be a servant to this world for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we look at our lives and we know 
that in many instances in which we have not been our best is because we have foolishly chased after and consumed foods that do not satisfy us. Father, we need your grace to see who we really are so that we truly see who you are. We must understand the nature of our hunger so we can truly understand you as the bread of life. Father, we live in a world that is always trying to woo us with foods that do not satisfy, with foods that poison us even. And God, we just pray that we will have that discernment as we think about you, Jesus, as we think about the gospel. Father, we know that as we live in a world filled with so much chaos and violence and turmoil, we know that the solution is not through politics, it's not through might, it's not through war, it is through you. And Father, we pray that we would begin where we can in our community and in our families and in our individual lives of making sure that we feed upon you so that we are able to go out into the world and be salt and light as you called us to be. Father, we pray for this world. We pray for ourselves. And we pray that you, Jesus, would satisfy all of our hungry souls by being the bread of life that you are. Hear us now, for we ask in your precious and holy name. Amen and amen.